When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode 102 of The Keith Law Show. I am Keith Law. My guest today is Ed Yong, author of the new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist for The Atlantic. On the baseball side, if you are a subscriber to The Athletic, you did get one piece from me last week, a scouting notebook looking at Jason Dominguez of the Yankees, Sedan Rafaela of the Red Sox, and a few other prospects for both of those teams. Unfortunately, after I wrote that, I got COVID. So I've been on the shelf or I guess on the injured list for a couple of days. I am on the mend now. It has pushed off a couple of other things I've been working on. But my column on players I was wrong about will appear later this week. It is September 19th as I record this. So at some point towards the end of this week, you'll see that column. On the board game side, I will also have a new review up this week for Paste. I uh, was off last week. We're going to go every other week over at Paste for the remainder of this year. If you don't subscribe to my email newsletter, I don't see why not. It's at tinyletter.com slash Keith Law. I did resume sending it out and talked about getting COVID, what the experience was like. Uh, I wrote that at a point when I was still reasonably sick. I would say I had about 36 hours of pretty sick and then about 36 more hours of kind of sick and now I am just technically sick but actually feel pretty much fine. Thank goodness I was vaccinated although I did get my uh, updated booster just probably a few days too late for it to matter at all for this particular infection. My guest today is author and writer Ed Yong, the author of the new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. He also won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Explanatory Reporting for his tremendous coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic for The Atlantic, and his first book was the wonderful I Contain Multitudes. You can find him on Twitter at Ed Yong, Y-O-N-G, 209. Ed, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So at the risk of being a bit dense here. Why this topic? Your first book, I Contain Multitudes, seemed like a very timely topic and one of immediate import to a lot of readers, whereas Mm. this one is a bit more abstruse, I would say. What drew you to writing about the animal world and specifically animal senses? Well, see, it's actually closer to um, the things that I care about. Um, I Contain Multitudes really was a natural history book with this sort of uh, like human health veneer over it. Um, but it's the natural history bit that I, I truly care about. I think that the uh, animal kingdom is full of endless wonders. And in particular, the way they sense the world is um, is is 
endlessly rich um, with uh, with fascinating tidbits. Um, so I, I think that the uh, an immense world is a journey through the ways animals experience the world around us, um, through the uh, magnetic fields that they perceive and that we don't, the colors they see and we don't, the sounds that they can hear and that we can't. Um, and I think that by understanding all of that, we appreciate the world around us in new ways, you know, even something as familiar as um, a flower or um, the streets that I might walk my dog down every day, take on this new and magical air if I think about them through the ears and eyes and noses um, of the creatures that I share this planet with. Um, so, so part of it was about that. It's, it's about um, joy. It's about wonder. And there's a sort of running bit of connective tissue that goes through all of my work, which is that um, the, the world around us is deeper and richer than we previously knew. And there are all these hidden facets to it, whether it's the microbes that share our bodies or the things that animals perceive that we don't that are worth knowing about. You introduce the concept of Umwelt early in the book, and it becomes the narrative thread that carries the reader through all of the senses, all of the stories in the entire book, where you go through not just the five senses that we tend to think of, but even some others that exist more in the animal world, some the humans have that we don't even necessarily maybe realize we have. So can you explain this concept of Umwelt and where it came from? Yeah, sure. Um, it it's simply the German word for environment, but I um, and uh, other uh, scientists don't use it to just mean the physical environment. So, you know, the desk I'm sitting at right now, the chair I'm sitting on, these are not the Umwelt. The Umwelt is the sensory environment. It's the part of reality that our senses give us access to. Um, so, for example, um, I can see uh, colors ranging from red to violet. My dog, um, his name is Typo, he's a corgi. Um, his visual spectrum goes from blues to yellows. It doesn't include red or violet. Those are not part of his umbelt. But ultraviolet, colored uh, beyond uh, our typical rainbow, is part of the umbelt of, say, a bee uh, or a bird, right? Indeed, actually, most of the animals around us that can see. Similarly, my umbelt does not include um, the magnetic field of the Earth that a sea turtle can sense and use to navigate on its long migration. It doesn't include um, a lot of the smells that my dog can pick up, the ultrasonic frequencies that a bat can detect as it flies around the night sky. So the Umbelt concept is really about how each creature is perceiving just a small sliver of the fullness of reality. And I think it's one of the most profound and beautiful concepts in, in all of biology. It tells us that you know, even though I'm sitting here with this seemingly full and complete understanding of the world around me, it, it really is just a partial understanding. Um, you know, I'm really missing out on a lot of what there is to perceive and know about. And I think that is a very humbling, but also a, an expansive and beautiful idea. Uh, I agree. And I, I, it also lends into sort of a bit of personal philosophy, which is which I would probably sort of... Um, almost nihilistically sum up as we're not that special. There is this sort of right. sense that we are some sort of end product of evolution, which is also clearly not true if you know anything at all about evolutionary science. But it turns out there are lots of other species in the animal kingdom, even beyond the animal kingdom, that can sense all sorts of things happening in the world that we just completely miss out on. 
Uh, absolutely. You know, many of our senses are, are great, right? Like our, our eyes are um, incredibly sharp. Uh, well, mine aren't. I, I wear terrible contacts. But <laughs> mine used theoretically, to be. <laughs> a human's eyes are very sharp, uh, matched only by uh, birds of prey. But, um, you know, as I said, there are loads of things that we can't sense. Um, ultraviolet light is something that most animals that can see can detect. We cannot. Um, so you're right that we aren't that special. And um, th this one of the scientists who um, really pioneered the Umwelt concept, um, Jakob von Uxkul, um, used it as a sort of leveling force, you know, putting humans on the same uh, um, same uh, tier as all the other creatures around us, each of them getting only a partial understanding of the world. But, but you could also flip that to say that, um, sure, we're not that special, but, but actually the Umwelt concept shows that everything is special. Right? Every creature has its own unique um, way of experiencing the world around us. Um, so when I go for a walk around my neighborhood, um, on every single walk, I will probably see um, starlings, pigeons, uh, maybe a few crows, some sparrows. Or these birds are everywhere. I see them every single day. And because they're so familiar, it's very easy to think that they are boring. And yet, each of these creatures has tetrachromatic vision, which means they have access to an entire dimension of colors that our eyes can't see. When they fly, they can feel the movement of air currents over their wing and sense them well enough so they can prevent turbulence of the kind that might cause them to, to fall out of the sky. They can hear qualities in their own songs that are too fast for our slower hearing to perceive. Most of them have wraparound visions. They can see behind themselves as well as in front. This, I, I could go on, right? But the idea is that um, each of these supposedly familiar and mundane species is magnificent, even when they're doing absolutely nothing of note. And I think that is true for most of the creatures around us. You also spend a lot of time describing some of the individual scientists who engage in this work, which I also found very interesting. And one thing that recurs is that many of them this may be my interpretation, but seem to perceive the world a little differently than the rest of us. Do you think that's kind of, oh, first of all, is that even a fair interpretation on my part? And is, is this kind of what's drawing them to study these very sort of niche topics within the animal world? Yeah, I, I think that's, part, that's partly true. Um, certainly there are, seem to be a lot of scientists um, who work in this field, sensory biology, who are themselves um, uh, who 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 have um, atypical senses themselves? Um, so you know they they might. I I'm always surprised, like the, the meeting people who, for example, study color vision and who are red green color blind. Um, you know, but there's also and then there's also a lot of people who are artists. Um, there are a lot of people who get into this field, but who are also like musicians um, who study sound, or uh, you know painters who study um, color and vision. Uh, and I think that. There are reasons for these these connections. You know, I think having um, uh, uh, being neurodivergent, um, having an atypical sense of the world, gives you maybe a better understanding of the ways in which other creatures might deviate from the supposed norm. Um, and and I think um, a lot of this um, you know de demands a sort of artistic spirit because science can teach us a lot about what animals are capable of perceiving, but there's always going to be a gap between our subjective experience and theirs. Um, I do. I spend more time with my dog than any other non-human animal, 
And yet I still don't really fully know what he's thinking at any time, what he's smelling when we go on walks. I, I get some of it because I've read up on studies about how dogs experience the world, but I don't, I really don't know still. And, and I think that that barrier can really only be surmounted by acts of active imagination. And, and I think that's why people who successfully blend the arts and the sciences tend to do very well in this field and, and are often drawn to it. Have some of those studies you've read and you, you give uh, at least one story that I can think of early in the book about a scientist who, who has a dog um, who works in this field. Has it changed how you either how you interact with typo or maybe just when you take typo for walks? I'm thinking of this scientist story. I apologize. I don't remember the name, but she's essentially saying, sure. you know, she's she she structures the walks with her dog differently because now she understands what the dog is sensing, as opposed to just, I'm taking my dog for a walk because that's what you're supposed to do. It's, no, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to slow down. And this is how he's experiencing his world, how he's exploring his world, how he's greeting other dogs, which yeah. to me was kind of, I don't know, I, I don't want to overuse the phrase, but a little mind blowing. It's, oh, I never thought of it that way. You don't think of it from the dog's perspective. Right, uh, absolutely. Uh, so, so uh, the scientist's name is Alexandra Horowitz. Um, if you're listening to this, she's got a new book out called The Year of the Puppy, which I highly recommend, and lots of books about how dogs sense and think. Um, yeah, from from talking to her, um, which I did actually before I got typo, um, I learned a lot about how dogs experience the world. And, and she talks about taking her dogs on smell walks, where um, the point of the walk is not to get from A to B, or not to like exercise the dog, but to let the dog just be a dog. And so she will um, go on these walks where her dogs get to set the pace. Um, they get to do what they want to do. And often what they want to do is to smell. They'll sniff really intently and enthusiastically, often exploring the same random patch of sidewalk or the same random plant for a long time. And she lets them do that. She's not tugging them along on the leash. Um, and that absolutely has um, influenced how I um, raise, how I've raised typo. Um, you know, sometimes sure we we need to go for a walk. Walk. You know, we have places to be. Exercise is important to him. But at least once a day, we do a smell walk. Um, and uh, I think it's it's so important for them because otherwise you're you're depriving them of the sense that is really like their primary way of experiencing the world. You know, it's as if like. I, it's as if you took a friend on uh, who could see on a beautiful hike and every time they stopped to look at the sunrise or a beautiful flower, you covered their eyes and just dragged them along by their neck. Right? That, that's sort of what it's like often when, when people walk their dogs um, because we're not thinking about their different umbelt um, and what they need to get the most out of their subjective experiences of the world. I described a few of the creatures in the book, such as the star-nosed mole and the emerald jewel wasp to my teenage daughter, and she responded with, ew, gross, why did you tell me that? <laughs> um, and I've personally always been a little freaked out by lampreys, uh, which you also mentioned, because I remember having one of the, oh my gosh, the tiny guides. Oh, I forgot what they exactly right, they're called, right, but these right. little like little little children's science guides, which my parents gave me a lot of. There was a picture of a lamprey, and for folks who don't know what a lamprey looks like, it, right, it has no jaws. Basically, it's just a thing of teeth that looks like it's going to jump out of the page and attack you. Yeah. Um, you know, forty five years later, I'm still a little unnerved by them. You don't seem to share this 
instinctive distaste for some of these odd creatures. So I'm curious, did you, or maybe maybe I, you could speak for some of the scientists, do you find this was something you had to get over to talk about these creatures? Or is this something you, or maybe some of the other scientists, just they didn't share that. They said, no, 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 that's not disgusting. That's really interesting. No, I, I've not felt that. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever felt that. Um, you know, s- snakes are some of my favorite animals. Um, I And the book is full of snakes spiders bats sharks scorpions right it's um in in some ways it's a way of trying to rehabilitate the image of creatures that i find endlessly fascinating and that i think a lot of people find um repulsive and look i i get why i think you know we've been culturally trained to think of these creatures as as uh in negative ways but i think that they um (laughs) Uh, if anything, I felt like I had to toe pare back the amount of spider content in the book because a lot of people <laughs> genuinely are arachnophobic. Yep. But but I think that um, you know I, I there's a bit in the in one of the chapters where I'm in a room full of large giant spiders with a scientist who loves yes. them, and um, you know I think you can you ca- I think you can hopefully pull a few people into this world by showing what it's like to be with someone who loves these creatures. Um, and I love them, she loves them, and, and I think they are fascinating. You know, the, the just, just to talk about spiders, right? Spiders, um, those that spin webs live in this world full of vibrations. They can sense the, um, the signals given by things that land on the web. They can tell large prey from small prey, prey from things like random debris or, or wind. Um, the web is like, is a piece of technology. It extends the spider's senses over um, much greater distances than their own bodies. And in many ways, it functions like my cell phone does. My phone gives me access to information from all around the world, and it conveys that inf- information to me often in the form of vibrations, like buzzes. And, and, and um, that's basically what a spider does, except they've been doing it for hundreds of millions of years, and they build that technology from their own bodies. And, you know, maybe maybe for some people listening to this, um, you know, to, to love a spider is, is, is a, bit of a, a, a bit of a difficult thing to ask, but I think we can certainly respect them and, uh, and admire them. Um, and I think there is much to admire here about these animals and about a lot of the ones that I think have an unfairly negative um, stereotype. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I think a lot of it is these negative stereotypes. They, and often inaccurately, are assumed to be carriers of disease or 
threats to right. us, to our pets, to our crops, which is, you know, and I, I trust me, I didn't always think this way, but now I recognize it's a fairly narrow view of nature too. And and often it's wrong, right? There's this, this, this rising belief that rats have been sort of unfairly blamed for many of the great plagues. Maybe they didn't actually spread the bubonic plague back in the, whatever that was, the 1300s or so that, you know, and even if that's, whether that's true or not, that they were the main vector, the point is that's not all that a rat is. That's not all that, you know, a spider is not just you know, the very small number of them that are actually poisonous. There is a lot more depth to each individual species, to the entire class of spiders or rodents, etc., beyond what we see. I mean, it's almost like we are sensing through an extremely narrow little tunnel that's just how they affect us and not the entire experience of the animal, the insect, the bird, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. You know, I, I am much more likely to be harmed by another person than by any of these animals. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I think that they all have, you know, I, I said at the start that um, part of the unbuilt idea is that everything is special. Like uh, a rattlesnake can sense the infrared uh, radiation given off by the body heat of another of another animal. Um, you know, so it can sense where a mouse is in the dark. A bat can use high pitched um, calls to perceive the world through the rebounding echoes and fly um, through an obstacle course in complete darkness and pluck a spider from a web. A jumping spider, um, despite being smaller than my fingernail, has. Um, eyes that are so sharp that it can make out the moon in the night sky. Um, in each of these creatures is is miraculous in its own right, and I think it's it's a shame that we ignore some of them and and um, you know and and uh, and treat them as worthy only of of revulsion. I've heard from readers of an immense world who've said that. Um, you know, not only does it make them think about their dog or their pet differently, but they've you know thought thought it twice before, say, clearing out the cobweb in the corner of their room. Um, and that makes me happy. I, I think that what I want the book to do is to engender more of a sense of curiosity for the creatures around us and empathy, like trying to understand what their lives are like. Um, you know, I I've spent the last three years reporting on the COVID pandemic, I would argue that a lack of empathy has under, uh, you know, un underlied a lot of the problems that we've experienced in the pandemic. Um, and it, it, I think empathy is a muscle. I think you can learn to flex it. And I would hope that an immense world encourages people to do that, even for creatures whom they would never have thought uh, that they might want to even try and empathize with. Following on that, that, you know, it's always been my, well, not always, but I've, I've really come to the belief again over the last few years, just it's made me more of a pessimist, particularly the pandemic, but that we only seem to care about the environment when the damage we're doing might adversely affect us, especially if mm. it's very personal. Do you feel, and you finish this book, you've got an immense world, you, you conclude with a, a chapter on Here's what we're losing. We're doing all kinds of damage through various types of pollution, even talking about light and noise pollution, which are, on the one hand, much less discussed than other forms of pollution, but on the other hand, maybe a little easier to address. 
you talk about them and say we're we're threatening a lot of species, a lot of biodiversity. We're we are changing the course of development of many of these species. Do you think there is a you know for this sort of skeptical reader, is there something direct? Is there a a reason why people should care more that that maybe keeping the biodiversity? benefits us in more ways. There are things we have left to discover from following the animal world that might further benefit humans. Or do you feel that it's more just sort of the holistic, look, this is, there's beauty in and of itself in the animal world, and that is worth preserving, which is, which I do agree with. Yeah, I I think for me, it's definitely more the latter. I mean, you can make a transactional argument, right? Like, so light pollution, for example, um, disrupts uh, pollinating insects. Um, it, it pulls them away from the plants that they need to service. And uh, whether we like it or not, we require pollinators um, to uh, for the success of many of our crops and the plants that we need. So, yeah, you could absolutely make an argument that um, if we don't address things like light and noise pollution, we will personally lose out. But, you know, I, I feel... I honestly feel like those are not arguments that are going to motivate people. Um, I think they feel too disconnected. I, I really think that if we are going to protect nature, we need to be invested in it on a deep um, spiritual level. I, I think we want, we need to, we want, we need to want things to do well for, in their own terms. And I think part of that's part of the idea behind the book. It's to try and show people that nature is full of wonders to make them feel a little closer to it and maybe feel more of an impetus to want to protect it. You know, I, I think if people don't have that, I don't think no economic argument is going to really motivate them to do what's necessary. Um, you know, what, one of the arguments I make in the book is that things like light and noise pollution are the pollution of disconnection. Part of what makes them so insidious is not just that they're harming animals around us, but they are, that they are um, making us oblivious to that harm, that they are severing our connection from nature. So just take noise pollution. Um, during the early pandemic, there was a lot of talk about pe- from people saying, I can suddenly hear a lot more birds than I used to hear. And there were all these memes about nature is healing, you know, the idea that birds were sort of flying back, flocking, flocking black, blah, flocking back to places where humans were staying indoors. But it's really more that because people were being quieter, we could hear more around us and we could hear over longer distances. And this is what noise pollution does. It it makes us oblivious to the nature that exists even in our own backyards and makes nature feel like a distant thing. And I think a lot of Americans think of nature as Yosemite or Yellowstone or Zion or the Grand Canyon, these sweeping vistas that are defined by their magnificence and that are very, very remote and far away from the average person's life. But if you think about the Umwelt concept really hard, you understand that wilderness is in our backyard, right? There's wilderness in the way my dog smells his way around our streets. There's wilderness in the way the sparrows outside my window see the world. And I think we we understand that we feel a little bit closer to nature, like it's it's right there. We don't have to travel to see um, the extraordinary. It really is all around us all the time. And I hope that maybe that makes people feel a little closer to it. And same same thing with light pollution. You know, I went to visit scientists who study this. Um, 
they went to this parking lot in a national park. You know, it's, it, this is one of the least light polluted places in the country. And still, you know, there's enough to blot out the uh, view of the stars. Um, they were doing this project where they switched the bulbs of this parking lot to red, which is much easier on the eyes. And when they did, then when they did that, I was just astonished at how much more I could see. Like for the first time in my entire life, I could see the Milky Way stretching across the sky. And this is like our own galaxy. You know, this is the light of countless stars traveling unimaginable distances only to normally be blotted out at the very last second by the light of a parking lot. And, you know, I, I think that's almost unimaginably tragic. And we can do something about that that restores our sense of connection to the cosmos, to other species around us, maybe even to each other. Uh, I was very pleased to see the bacterium Wolbachia make a brief appearance in an immense <laughs> world in a footnote because it was for folks who haven't read. It's a it is a star, one of the stars of I contain <laughs> yeah. multitudes. I'm curious if you continue to track the experiments that uh, folks are doing. Some in the United States, but I think particularly in, in other parts of the world, to try to use Wolbachia to reduce the population of the Aegis aegypti mosquitoes. Yeah, um, so Wolbachia is an incredibly successful bacterium that's found in a lot of insects, and a lot of scientists have been trying to get um, get it uh, to um, to release uh, mosquitoes infected with this bacterium because uh, it stops them from spreading the viruses behind things like dengue fever, yellow fever, Zika, and and others. And those trials absolutely have progressed since I um, wrote I Contain Multitudes. Um, there have been really, really promising uh, and frankly striking results, stunning results uh, from Yogyakarta in Indonesia, a, a megacity full of millions of people. And there, um, these, these trials, I, I'm not blanking on the exact numbers, but have uh, been shown to reduce the prevalence of dengue. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's I, I think that's great. Uh, it's it's a it's a that whole story came from just studying these random bacteria in these random insects, um, and it's it's an example where studying the natural world has um, led to advances that are going to significantly improve human health. And, you know, I think an, an immense world continues that line of reasoning, um, you know, and, and extends it even further. Like my argument really is that um, even if we're not getting health benefits from studying this, you know, I'm, I'm going to like live longer because I know about the sensory worlds of other animals. Um, my, my life is nonetheless deeper and richer. You know, I'm glad for this knowledge. I'm glad for being able to think about the creatures around us in a more profound way. Um, you know, I, it has it has enriched uh, every walk I take around my block, and I hope that readers of the book get the same experience from it. Uh, last question I had for you was uh, related to your work for the Atlantic. Have we just lost the battle against COVID nineteen? Is, is there any reason for me not to be pessimistic, uh, but both about this one and? The next pandemic, because there will be another one at some point. Mm -hmm. And I see our response this time, our, our response in the United States, and then just the global response. It feels like, especially now with some of the comments that President Biden made the other day, just a collective shrug of the shoulders. 
Yeah, um, I think the dereliction of responsibility from this administration and the previous one have been appalling. Um, and it is difficult to be pass not to be pessimistic. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have moved past the pandemic and yet 400 plus Americans are dying every day. Um, you know, I continually talk on the phone with um, people who are still suffering from the debilitating symptoms of long COVID. Um, I just wrote a piece about brain fog um, and what that means and how much it costs people. I just heard from a friend um, and colleague yesterday who is suffering from long COVID and and I didn't know. Um, so it's it, it it is hard. It is very challenging for me to um, to continue to sort of stare this problem in the face when I think that we have repeatedly failed to bring the full force of um, you know social change necessary to do better at this problem. And as you say, more pandemics are certainly imminent in probably nearer a nearer future than people might care to think. I do think that. Um, one thing about this problem, though, is that we there is always a chance to do better at it. Um, you know, the 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 horrible thing about a virus is that um, the the exponential nature of uh, spreading infectious disease means that a single bad choice can do exponential harm, but a single it also means that a single kind choice can do exponential good. So I'm still trying to write about the cost of the pandemic to the people who've borne the highest costs. Um, I'm still wearing a mask when I go out to public and still when I go out in public um, to shops or to events. Um, I am still trying to make decisions bearing in mind the burden to other people around me who I care about, to healthcare workers who have been inundated with relentless waves of this stuff, to the long haulers um, who are still struggling to seek care. And I have also, I wrote a piece earlier this year about um, the, the sort of things that I think give me a little bit of hope, like the grassroots groups that have sprung up in the wake of the pandemic, who are fighting for um, the rights of people who've lost loved ones to COVID, for people who are immunocompromised, for people who um, are suffering from long COVID, the types of people who, frankly, this administration has abandoned um, to in a, in a moral, moral catastrophe. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who are still trying very hard to make sure that the lessons from this pandemic have not been forgotten and to make sure that we are not as unprepared for the next one. I wish that we lived in a world where those people were not having to swim upstream uh, and fight against the current, um, but it reassures me to know that they are out there um, a lot of, you know, ACT UP, um, one of the most successful activist groups in history, on huge wins um, after the arrival of HIV AIDS. Um, and they did it with much smaller numbers than the people, groups of people who are now fighting for um, better COVID policies and better pandemic preparedness policies. Um, you know, I, I, that work isn't going to be done in a matter of months or years. Uh, I think it's, you know, it, it's generational work um, and it's important. Um, but I think 
I don't think that we have the luxury of nihilism. Um, you know, as you say, more of this stuff is in our future. And if we don't try and build in the systems of care um, and of resilience that will make people better, uh, more prepared for pandemics, we're going to go through this again. There's a great documentary for folks who are interested in ACT UP and um, TAG Treatment Action Group uh, called How to Survive a Plague, which is, I just looked it up, it's actually streaming on HBO Max. It is um, tremendous, a tremendous success story, too, of activism uh, to get the medical and political establishments to move on uh, a plague that was really getting overlooked at the time. My uh, guest this week has been Ed Yong, the author of the wonderful new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Uh, he also writes for The Atlantic, He and his first book, I Contain Multitudes, which we've talked about several times, is also excellent. You can find Ed on Twitter at edyong209. Ed, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Keith. Take care. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't gotten that updated booster, I highly recommend it. You don't want to get any sicker than I did. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Bye.